Hey everybody, welcome back to the Reclamation Podcast, where our goal is to help you reclaim good practices for faith and life. My name is Tony, and today is episode 116 of the podcast. I get to sit down with Major General Retired John Gronsky. Now, John has written a brand new uh, resource called Iron Sharpen Leadership. I love his quote, it is the people, not things, who nurture our souls. In our conversation today, we talk about character, we talk about competence, we talk about resilience and all the things. I love his approach, and he's such a good voice for this season of leadership that I'm in, and I know that that you're probably in as well. So hey, do me a favor, go ahead and hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to podcasts. Leave a rating or review on iTunes. We're trying to get to 100 by the end of the year. And if you could, share this episode with a friend. That is the highest compliment you can give us. Hey, I don't know if you knew this or not, but we're part of the Spirit and Truth Podcast Network. And what that means is that we're connected with like-minded podcasts to help build a platform to share the kingdom message. To learn more about Spirit and Truth, check out their website, spiritandtruth.life. Well, guys, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Major General Retired John Gronsky. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm excited today to have author, speaker, and leadership guru, Major General John Gronsky. Uh, Sir, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Tony, I'm really uh, happy that you've invited me on, and I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Well, full disclosure for all the listeners, um, when I got out of the reserves, I was in E6, and so I don't think I'm going to be able to make it through this conversation without calling you sir the entire time. I hope that's okay with you. Um, I'll, I'll do my best to try to work in and out of it, but it's just such a, a habit. You see those stars and you just got to carry on. You know what I mean? Yeah. You, you know, Tony, I prefer John, but you do whatever, <laughs> whatever you're comfortable with. <laughs> well, I, one of the things I love about your ministry is that, um, that you are really passionate, not just about leadership, but about people. And um, there's a quote on your website that I want to start with. And it says that it is the people, not things, who nurture our souls. I was wondering if you could just kind of um, help us understand how you came to that idea. Yeah. uh, I I guess I came to that idea quite quite naturally because, you know, um, I, I don't think we should chase after material things. I think we should chase after uh, relationships, building relationships with, with, with people. And, you know, I, I came across something a few months ago that I thought was interesting. Uh, somebody mentioned that the new currency uh, of the era we're in is, is not money, but it's relationships. Mm. And, and so, you know, I really think, uh, you know, doing everything that we could to develop uh, long-lasting relationships where we could help people become uh, better versions of themselves, uh, and, and also uh, take the time uh, to understand that we also need mentors in our life and, and people who who uh, we could use to help us along. And uh, so, so that that's what I really mean by you know it's people that nurture. Our, nurture our souls rather than material things. Well, you were in the military for a really long time and I was in as well. And one of the things that we both know is that, um, that the armed forces aren't really designed to help you build like great relationships. It's, it's a much, it's a much uh, more difficult task than I think 
than what people imagine. And, and as you progress in leadership, it becomes even harder. And so I, I'm curious, John, what do you think um, is the key to building those kind of relationships that feeds the soul, especially as we grow in leadership? Yeah, I, I think um, character is the foundation of leadership. And when, when I mm-hmm. talk about character, you know, I talk about understanding what your own personal core values are. And I, I think a lot of people perhaps don't spend enough time being introspective and, and really developing and putting down on paper after some serious thought, you know, their, their three to five personal core values. I, th- I think that's so important because if we don't know what our own personal core values are, how are we going to align those values uh, with the values of organizations that we might work for? Uh, and, and then the other thing with values, uh, which is important in one's life, is when we make personal decisions to factor our values into our decision-making process. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not sure how many people take the time to factor their values in to, to decisions that they make. And then, you know, we could take this to uh, a business uh, perspective uh, or, or really any organization and, and those, you know, chief executive officers of, of, of these businesses, when, when they're making business decisions, it's important to factor those organizational values into the business decisions they make. And, mm-hmm. and we could see failures of that. You know, Enron is a perfect example, right? I mean, Enron right. had organizational values, but they certainly didn't factor them into the decisions they made. Uh, and then we look at companies, uh, you know, a company I like to use as a good example is, is Johnson & Johnson. You know, back in the uh, early 80s when they had the, the Tylenol crisis, you know, where somebody laced bottles of Tylenol with cyanide in the Chicago area. Uh, James Burke was the CEO of, of, of Tylenol at the time. And, uh, you know, just, just a few years before when he took over as the CEO, he brought his leadership team together and they took a look at the J&J credo. And Burke said, hey, we're going, we're, we're going to do something here as a senior leadership team. We're going to look at this credo and we're going to either decide to abide by the values in this credo or we're going to get rid of it. Mm. And uh, they, they, they decided that they were going to abide by the values in that credo. And then a few years later, uh, Tylenol crisis and, and Burke and his leadership team made the decision uh, to remove every bottle of Tylenol from all retail stores. And not only that, they allowed consumers to turn in bottles of Tylenol, even if they were already open. It cost J&J well over thir- uh, $30 million dollars. Wow. Uh, to, to do this, but they felt it was the right thing to do because they didn't know what other uh, bottles of Tylenol might have been laced with, with with cyanide, and seven people had already died in the Chicago area. So, uh, you know, there were analysts who thought the Tylenol brand was going to be dead uh, because of what happened, but because of those actions Burke and his leadership team took, uh, staying true to their organizational values, within six months after the crisis, Tylenol regained almost 80% of its market share. And of course, the Tylenol brand is still uh, alive and well. So I think that that's a great example leaders could look at to say, you know what, you know, being true to your values, factoring values into business decisions really is, really is a good technique. So can, can we drill down on the idea about the values a little bit more? I would love to hear if you're willing to share. And if not, that's okay, too. I would love to hear your values and kind of maybe more importantly, how you came to them. Yeah, you know, when I was in my late 20s, I was at a dinner 
and the guest guest speaker at the dinner, uh, you know, had had a, a speech where she talked about her personal core values and how they led to the successful career she had. And as I was driving home from the dinner, I was thinking, wow, that was an inspiring talk. And, and then I thought to myself, if anybody asked me what my core values were, would I be able to answer that question? I thought to myself, no, I wouldn't. You know, I never really thought enough about it. And of course I had values, but I never really thought sure. what are the most important core values to me. So I went on this introspective journey. It took me about six months of really thinking long and hard about what was important to me. And, and the values I came up with were service, persistence, integrity, commitment, and positive energy. And, and I felt as I was going to live my life and lead people, I, need to, I needed to uh, exhibit these five personal core values. And, and I've tried to, to uh, live, live my life that way, especially with, with uh, service, integrity, and, and, and positive energy, because I think those three things are, are, are so important when we're leading other people. So I imagine there's somebody's listening right now and uh, he or she's got a family and they're trying to, you know, they're, they're probably in their mid thirties, late or, or early forties, somewhere around there. And they're trying to figure out their values. They're thinking about their life. They're thinking about their work. They're thinking about their faith. Um, how would you tell someone to start on this journey of, of figuring out, man, what is it that's important to me? Yeah. Uh, you know, I read this book uh, a number of years ago. The name of the book is Courage, the Backbone of Leadership. It's by Gus Lee, mm -hmm. uh, uh, just just a, a leader who, who I admire and I consider a mentor. And, and in this book, he talked about values in a way I never thought about values before. He said, not all values are high values. He said there's there's low values, medium values, and then uh, just a couple of high values. And he said, you know, uh, low values, for example, would be racism, cronyism. You know, when we look at somebody like Adolf Hitler, you know, the values he had, uh, right. very low values. And then he said there's medium values. And medium values could be things such as loyalty and duty, because we could be loyal to a despicable person. You know, there were many people who were loyal to Adolf Hitler. Again, to use him as an example. And then he said there's only a couple of high values. And and the two high values he talked about were integrity and personal courage. Wow. And and he defined integrity for acting for what is right, regardless of risk. Mm. And then he defined personal courage as correcting wrongs, regardless of danger. And I think, you know, I, I know a lot of people who listen to your program are Christians. And I think if we think of the way Jesus lived his life and as we try to emulate his way of living, uh, it's really all about integrity and, and, and it's about courage. And then the other thing I think that separates Christianity uh, from all other religions is really the, the whole concept of, of forgiveness. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's, there's not a lot of other religions that talk about forgiveness as Christianity does. And, you know, when Jesus was on the cross, he, he forgave those who, who crucified him. So, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, as we, so you, you asked me, you know, how does one go, go through this journey of, of deciding what their values are? I, I, I think to, to read things like, like Gus Lee's book, to read 
to, to read the Bible, to, th- to think about, uh, you know, just, just what is important in your life. And everybody's going to have, you know, their values are going to be, you know, perhaps a little bit different. Um, but, but really it's about what is important to you, to you, uh, to you in your life. And, and then make that decision, even in tough times, you've got to adhere to those values because it's easy to adhere to your values when things are going well, but it's when things are going tough, that's when you, when you've also got to adhere to your core values. Do you have a a process in place when you've got to make like this big decision, like a life changing decision? Do you have a a, a set um, kind of process where you throw the values in or is it so baked into your personality now or how do we live in that tension? Yeah. You know, I, you know, uh, after spending 40 years in the army, you know, I was trained on the military decision-making process, which is really, you know, doing an analysis of, of, of the mission. Uh, and, and, and then, uh, at that point in time, I, I like to factor values in, Mm-hmm. And then coming up with various courses of action, you know, what are, what are the options you have in terms of making this de- decision? And usually there's two or three viable options that, that one has. And then you compare options, you know, understanding what the risk of each option is, and then ultimately making a decision. But again, making a decision with, with those core values as the foundation of the uh, choice you make in, in, in terms of options and then, and then moving forward and, and then being prepared to pivot a bit if you need to, you know, as, as, as perhaps more information is gained, uh, you know, that you didn't have before when you initially made the decision, uh, you know, be prepared to pivot a bit because there's one thing about decision-making is we are never going to have perfect information to make decisions. Uh, we're always going to have to be able to, we're, we're always going to have to make decisions with less than perfect information. Mm. And, and when I do my leadership training and, and executive coaching, you know, I talk, I talk to uh, fellow leaders about having the courage to make decisions with less than perfect information. And Colin Powell talked about this, you know, he said, he said, you should have between 40 to 70% of the information you need before making a decision. And he said, if you, if you make decisions with less than 40% of the information available, then you're probably just shooting from the hip. And if you wait till you have more than 70% of the information, you're probably going to miss an opportunity. So it's like that between 40 to 70% is, is, is the sweet spot in, in uh, making a decision. But you have to have the courage to do that because it does take courage to make decisions. Uh, I, I really appreciate that. And it has never felt more um, applicable than maybe in the last two years with COVID and the pandemic and and seeing leaders have to make these decisions, not knowing what it was going to look like. I mean, when we shut down the church for the first time, it was, it, we thought it'd be for like three weeks, <laughs> six yeah. months later, we're still not meeting. Um, so I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, you know, in all your work with leaders around the world and the work that you've done in the military and all the the high end leadership that you've done, what has been the impact that you've seen so far on leadership because of the pandemic? I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, it's about resiliency. Uh, mm. And to me, resiliency is not only about overcoming adversity, it's also becoming the best person you could be. And resiliency doesn't happen by itself. People have to train uh, to become more resilient. Uh, 
And and when I talk about resiliency, I, I, I talk about fitness. And and yes, I think physical fitness is important to being a resilient person. But I also think there's other elements of fitness. There's emotional fitness, there's mental fitness, and then there's spiritual fitness. And so you've got to work at these things. And I think the leaders who came out of the pandemic the best were leaders who had worked at uh, becoming resilient people before the pandemic even started. Uh, and, and so there's other elements to this. It's, it's about moving out of your comfort zone, you know, uh, you know, making yourself uncomfortable, even if you don't have to be uncomfortable in order to harden yourself a bit, you know, it's like going to the gym and, and, you know, lifting weights that are a little bit harder for you to lift, you know, just using that as an example or going out for a run and maybe running a distance. That's usually a little bit harder for you to, to attain in order to, in order to stretch and in order to, to grow and order to make yourself uncomfortable moving out of your comfort zone. So, you know, th those type of things uh, people have to strive to do. Uh, so when tough times do occur, uh, they're, they're more able to, to make it through those tough times. And then uh, in steady state operations, they're able to be the best person they could be or lead their organization to be the best organization it could be. Like yourself, you know, you want to lead your church to be the best church it could be, you know, and people are expecting that from you as the leader of the church. So, um, you know, it, it, it's it, it's all about doing those things uh, to steal yourself for when hard times come, you're able to make it through better. Yeah, it sounds a lot like... Uh I was in the room when Donald Rumsfeld in 04, 05, uh, I think it was probably 04, when he said, you, you go to war with the, the army you have, not the army you wish you had, right? Yeah. And it, it feels like what you're talking about is that same idea, right? Is you, uh, you go into pandemics with the resiliency you have, not the one that you wish you have for the pandemic. So it, it starts today, right? That's kind of what you're saying? And that, that, that's exactly right. And, and uh, you know, if you want to be able to make it through those tough times and also achieve everything you could achieve, you got to work at that. It's not going to happen by itself. So one of the things we say around here a lot is that if you're not dedicated to your disciplines, you'll be destroyed by your distractions. And so in 40 years in the military and leading at an elite level, and now what you're doing with your consulting and this new resource out, Iron Sharpen Leadership, um, what are some of your daily disciplines because, I mean, you're putting out blogs, you're on podcasts all the time. You're putting out a lot of content right now. How do you keep yourself uh, fit? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. Um, you know, some, some basic things. You know, I, I, I do like to get up about 530 every morning. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and in order to get up at 530, I've got to go to bed at a reasonable time. You know, not, yeah. not just, you know, stay up watching mindless television or something. And, uh and I, and I also am disciplined about reading. You know, I, I read a lot every day. You know, in the morning, I do a reading from the Bible with, uh, you know, with my wife. And and uh, and then, you know, I, I, I'm always reading something. And, and lately, I've been reading uh, uh, a number of books about Abraham Lincoln, uh, who I consider to be a, just, just a remarkable leader. And, and I think we could all do well to try to emulate some of his his leadership traits that, that he had. So, and, and, and then I'm also disciplined about, about fitness. You know, I'm 65 years old now, uh, but I could still, uh, hold my own with people much younger than I am. Uh, and, and so I work at that. And then, uh, you know, so, so, you know, think about the things, the spiritual fitness, you know, uh, you know, uh, get, getting into the Bible as I do, 
the the mental fitness, you know, the, the reading that I do, the emotional fitness part is uh, I'm uh, 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 a proponent of emotional intelligence and, and understanding that one has to work on self-awareness and self-control before they could begin to be empathetic to other people and then develop productive relationships with, with other people. So I, I work on, on, on those things uh, and then the physical elements. So really I, I, I try to work on those, those elements of fitness that I, that I've talked about. And that's, and you have to be disciplined to do that, you know, cause it's easy to get into a rut or get away from it. Uh, so uh, you, you just have to have, and I, I think, Spending 40 years in the army has helped me develop that discipline, but you don't need to have served in the military to, to be a disciplined person. It, it, it's all about working at it. And, and you know, uh, uh, you, you asked me a, gr- a great question. Now, how, how could people work at it that perhaps aren't so disciplined? I think the way to work at that is by starting small, you know, doing, doing small things in a disciplined matter, forming those habits and and you've got to be consistent as you develop habits and then and then work on 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 some bigger things. So if you could if you could just get in the habit of, you know, you set yourself a time when you want to wake up in the morning and then be disciplined about waking up in the morning and then once you achieve that then move on to something else. So I think it's starting small and working toward bigger things. So after waking up so early for so many years, are you no longer needing an alarm clock kind of guy? Exactly. Uh, yeah. Very. So, the only time the only time I set an alarm clock is that when I, I I know I have to get up specifically for something and I just don't want to blow it. But generally, <laughs> I, I wake up around five five thirty every morning. Uh, I I find that like now sleeping in is like six fifteen, and I'm like, whoo, made it to six fifteen. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I love what you had to say about emotional intelligence, and one of the things is is you um. You kind of in in your in your book, you do a, a really great job of being very practical about lots of different leadership traits. And there are so many different chapters. There's 39 different chapters of things to choose from. But one of the things I wanted to ask about was uh, the empathetic leader, because um, there's not a lot of books out there that highlight that. W- why do you think um, that skill set is so important for leadership? Yeah, it, it builds trust. I mean, uh, tr- trust is is uh, the oil that allows an organization to uh, to operate smoothly. And and by having the ability to understand what other people are feeling uh, is 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 extremely important. And that's not being sympathetic. You know, it's being empathetic. Right. And 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 uh, as I uh, alluded to. Uh, you know, self-awareness is is the first element of emotional intelligence. And, and once you can understand how you're feeling and then control those emotions, it's only then that you could start to understand how other people feel. So I think it's impossible to understand how other people are feeling if you haven't taken the time to develop the skill to understand how you're feeling. You have to understand your own feelings first. And, and, and then once you demonstrate that empathy to other people, um, you know, they, they, you, you, you develop that sense of, of, of loyalty within the organization, that sense of, of trust within the organization, uh, where people don't have to feel like they have to watch their own back. They could then concentrate 
on doing things that are going to be good for the organization. If you've got an organization where people, where there's a lack of trust, everybody is expending energy on watching their own back rather than working productively. Mm. And of course, organizations like that do not flourish. So for someone who may not identify as an empathetic leader, do you think that um, it's something that we can work on and um, how, how do we develop that as a as a muscle? Yeah, no, that, uh, gr- great question on that. Uh, I, I think the first thing again is 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 getting in touch with your own feelings mm. and your own emotions, and and then uh, just developing way, ways to put yourself in the shoes of other people, and also work on. Not, you know, when, when, when a person makes a mistake, you know, whether it's coming to work late or whether it's a mistake they made at work or whatever the case, uh, don't, don't automatically go into the mindset of, you know, they did this on purpose, you know, understand like, you know, somebody, you know, a a great example, you know, I was talking to uh, a police chief out in, in the Midwest and he told the story of how, when he was a, a young officer, he got in a fender bender with his police car. <coughs> and, and the first thing, the first thing when he called his, uh, his, uh, supervisor about the fact he got in a fender bender with his police car, the first thing his, his corporal said to him is he started chewing him out, you mm-hmm. know, and, you know, well, well, what did you do wrong? You know, weren't you paying attention? You know, all these things when, and this police chief told me, you know, it, it would have been much better if the first words out of his mouth was, Hey, are you okay? You know, mm-hmm. did you get hurt? Did the other person in the other car get hurt? You know, like, again, that that's how you that that's an example of how you become an empathetic person, not not just assuming the worst in people, but assume that people might have made an honest mistake. And perhaps somebody's a little bit banged up or hurt and ask, ask how they're doing and, and, and those type of things. And then lead into, you know, then at some point in time, you could lead into, hey, what caused the accident and how could we learn from it? Uh, but but just don't uh, assume the worst in people. Yeah, I love that idea. Uh, the benefit of the doubt. I think it's uh, it's probably a skill that most of us. Well, I mean, emotion, a charged emotion, right? Like it tends to prevent us from being rational in those moments, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and just one other thing I do want to mention here is, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm not at all saying that you know you shouldn't hold people to standards. You know, I, I think it's important, you know, you set standards and then you have to hold people accountable. Accountability is important. So I'm not, I'm not saying don't hold people accountable or don't hold people to standards, but, you know, do it in a dignified and respectful manner. Mm. Uh, you know, a lot of times, uh, you know, we hear the term toxic leadership, you know, a yeah. leadership who is, is toxic, who is caustic, you know? And, and I think if a leader treats the people they lead with dignity and respect, it's impossible to be labeled as a toxic leader. However, you could reprimand somebody in a dignified Mm. and respectful way. You could even fire somebody in a dignified and respectful way. And and sometimes it's it's better for the person and the better better for the organization of, hey, it's just not the right fit. You know, you thought they were a right fit when you hired them. But then after retraining and, and counseling and coaching, they're still not getting it. Sometimes it's, it's, it's not only good for the organization, but it's good for the person to say, you know what, this, this may not be the right fit for you here. 
you know, you might want to move into another organization or another line of work where you're going to have a better fit. And, and you're only doing that person a, a service, but you could do it in a dignified and respectful manner. Yeah. In, in your career, I would imagine that you experienced all different levels of leadership. Uh, I, you know, I'm curious uh, from a military standpoint, where in your career do you think you learned the most about leadership? What, what level you were at? What job did you have? What made it so informative? Yeah, I, I, I think really the answer is I'm still learning. You know, <laughs> I, I, I haven't mastered it yet. Uh, as a matter of fact, if anybody reads my book, Iron Sharp and Leadership, they'll see that it's, it's filled with mistakes that I have made. And, and, I, and I like to say I've always learned more from mistakes I've made than from the times I've done something right by accident, you know, and, and, uh, but, but really, uh, as, as a platoon leader, you know, leading 40 soldiers and then a company commander leading 145 soldiers and right on up, you know, at every level between that and, and the division that I eventually led uh, of, of 15,000 soldiers, uh, I, I learned lessons along the way. One, one thing kind of sticks with me though, based on your question, I remember reading something early in my career that an organization takes on the personality of a leader. Mm. And, and I, I read that before I commanded this uh, uh, company of 140 soldiers. And then when I took command of, of this, uh, you know, 140 soldier unit, I was thinking to myself, you know, how, how, could a, how could the organization take on the leader's personality? How could these 140 soldiers take on my personality? How could that happen? You know, I kind of doubted it. And then I found that that's exactly the, the, the truth. So if, you know, if you could, you could put a, a sloppy leader in charge of a very highly functioning squared away organization, and that organization after a while is going to turn out to be sloppy. Mm. Or you could, put, you could put a very effective leader uh, in charge of a sloppy organization and over a period of time, that organization is going to turn out to be an effective, uh, you know, well-functioning organization. So, uh, you know, if you're a detail-oriented person, the organization is going to be detail-oriented. If you're, if you're uh, a leader who believes in customer service, the employees that work for you are going to uh, embrace uh, the sense of, of, of customer service. So uh, it, it really is true, I found, over, you know, 40 years of leading uh, that organizations do take on the personality of their leaders. So, sir, I, I got to get in your Kool-Aid just a little bit. Uh, what what personality trait did you see in your unit when you realized that it was true? What was the one thing that stood out? Like, oh, that's me. That's me. <laughs> I see in those troops. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I was always big into, into fitness. Mm -hmm. You know, and when I took over the unit, they weren't necessarily the most fit unit. And I saw that starting to turn. I was always into... Um, tough training, uh, cause I knew how hard that was or, or how important that was going to be for, for soldiers to, 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 uh, uh, you know, train hard. So when they were put into a real world situation, they were going to be able to have that, that muscle memory that was going to help them to, to win. And then also increase the probability of them coming home alive. So, uh, it, it was those things where I saw the unit changing in, in, in those ways that I thought, wow, you know, this really does work. 
in my head, I was thinking like all of a sudden they're all going to become fans of whatever your favorite sports team is. <laughs> uh, now that you no, know, I, was, no. I grew up in Pennsylvania as a, and I was a Green Bay Packer fan. So, you know, with, with Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, uh, both having teams in, you know, Pennsylvania, that probably wasn't going to work. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I think one of the things that I'm seeing a lot, and, and I would imagine you are too, is, um, you, you know, what some people call the burden of leadership. And and as I heard you talk about the number of troops and just pure volume, right, at that division level especially, but, you know, every life being so important and every life comes with a story, as as a leader yourself, and, and I'm sure that there are a lot of people listening who are leading in some way, shape, or form, how, how do we handle the burden of of leading other humans who are on a journey and, and all the stories that come with it. How, how do we handle the burden of leadership? Yeah, I, I guess uh, for me, I, I have a propensity toward serving other people. God, God has mm-hmm. given me that propensity, which I am very, very thankful for. Uh, and, and I really never looked at it as, as, a, as a burden. I always looked at it as the opportunity to serve more people. Uh, and so as I, as I would go up, you know, 140 at the company, 850, uh, at, at the battalion, 5,000 at the brigade, 15,000 at the division, I really looked at it as opportunities, uh, to, to serve more, more people. I, I think it's like, you know, in your church, as your congregation grows, I don't think you see that as a burden. I think you see that as an opportunity to get your message out to more people and to sure. minister to more people. Rather, I, I doubt that you see that as a burden. So, so I never saw it as a as as a burden. But I I, I always believe this, and and I and I do, uh, you know, put this out in messages that that you know if anybody th- you know if, if anybody is looking at climbing the corporate ladder and thinking, hey, when I when I get to a certain position. I've arrived and I, and I'm going to have people serving me, you know, because now I'm a, I'm a senior VP or I am the CEO or whatever the case might be. That is completely the wrong answer. You have to look at it as an opportunity for you to serve others rather than an opportunity for people to serve you as you, as you go up through, through an organization. And I I think, I think those leaders that are thinking life is going to get easier or they're going to have more people <laughs> serving them are the ones who eventually hit a ceiling and, and end up failing. Yeah. Now, I, how, how do you communicate to your new team that you're there to, to serve them as you enter? I mean, because all, all those things, what I hear is like transition one, transition two, you're transitioning at every level. How do you come in and begin to set that culture of servant leadership right off the bat? Yeah, uh, it, it, it's by uh, a, a couple of different ways. It, it, it's by being authentic and upfront about what you believe and then uh, demonstrating through action what you have said. Uh, w- one example, when I took command of the, the 28th Infantry Division, I was a big believer in initiative because I saw, you know, when I commanded a a brigade in, in Ramadi, Iraq in 2005 and 2006 uh, it was such a large area that we had to operate in. And it was so chaotic and violent there that it was imperative to 
uh, allow junior leaders to demonstrate initiative to get to get the job done. So I, I, I saw in combat how important initiative was. And, and I was a believer that if, if you don't set conditions in your unit in a steady state environment uh, where people feel comfortable demonstrating initiative, when you get into a combat situation, people will not be comfortable demonstrating initiative then either because they didn't have that muscle memory. And so I was a big believer that it was important for our leaders to demonstrate initiative. So I put out that demonstrating initiative is so important that it's worth the risk of people making honest mistakes. Mm. So, uh, you know, my Sergeant major, who was the, you know, the, the, the top enlisted, uh, soldier in, in the division, he was my right, my right hand man. Uh, you know, he said to me, you know, you know, uh, he said, people are going to be watching that when somebody does demonstrate initiative and they do make an honest mistake, people are going to be watching to how you react to that. And I said, you know, you're right. And so, you know, there were several uh, areas where, you know, people did demonstrate initiative and, and because they were stretching and growing and moving out of their comfort zone, they made a mistake. And, and I would always, you know, uh, as long as I knew it was an honest mistake and it was based on initiative they were trying to display, would just, you know, take them aside and, and say, okay, hey, you know, this was a mistake. You know, you've got to be upfront with that. But, but now how could we learn from this? And, and it's okay that you made that mistake because you were trying to do the right thing. But let's learn from it. Let's not make that mistake a second time. So, uh, again, you know, what you put out as a leader, uh, people are going to be watching to see, hey, uh, do, do your actions follow those words? I love that. I love that. And, and I think that you've kind of lived that well. And as I look at your scope of work and the military, and then, uh, I, I was wondering, could you kind of tell everybody a little bit about, um, you know, leader Grove and some of the things you're doing, of course, iron sharpen leaders, uh, leadership is an incredible resource that I, I strongly encourage people pick up, but, but also some of the, the work that you're doing is, is very relational. I was wondering if you might share a little bit about the vision that you have with growing leaders. Yeah, you know, a- absolutely. I mean, my my leadership philosophy is based on character, competence, and resilience. And and you know, I, I have been doing a lot of speaking to uh, large uh, corporate uh, organizations, uh, and and uh, you know, th- those are the things I I, I talk about. Uh, I'm happy to say I'm now doing uh, some leadership training for some law enforcement agencies, which I'm thrilled about doing because I do think uh, uh, law enforcement agencies uh, uh, needs to have that leadership training inculcated into their organizations rather than, you know, promoting somebody from a deputy to a corporal and from a corporal to a sergeant, sergeant to lieutenant without getting the requisite leadership training that should go with those levels. Uh, I think is detrimental to any organization, especially a law enforcement organization. Uh, so, uh, and and then I'm doing executive coaching. You know, I've done uh, executive uh, coaching for uh, uh, folks over at NATO, for example, mm. uh, and, and uh, doing some executive coaching. You know, for for people, you know, in in, in our country at, at various uh, uh, businesses and, and, and corporations. So. You know, I find that very rewarding. Uh, I, I'm actually also still working with the United States Army as a senior mentor for uh, some of the exercises that our, our, our Army does. So again, it's it's just an opportunity for me to 
you know, give back a little bit, you know, the lessons I've learned over the last 40 years of, of not only leading military units, but since a lot of my time was also spent in the National Guard, I, I had a full-time civilian career as a, as a, as a management consultant and, and worked with many Fortune 500 companies uh, in that vein. So uh, just an opportunity for me to reflect on the lessons I've learned uh, over a 40-year career of leading in some very, very trying circumstances and, 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 and help people learn from, from the lessons that I've learned. And, and you've been um, kind of processing these kind of lessons for a long time. You've, your first book, um, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring it up because it's such an interesting idea, right? The, the, the ride of our lives, I think it was published in, in 83 perhaps, or is that, that's when you, that's when you actually did the ride. I'm sorry. That's when you did the ride was 83. Right. And then, um, and, and can you kind of give everybody a synopsis of that? Because if, if I'm, I imagine a lot of my listeners are, are meeting you for the first time, but this is, this was kind of a big deal in your life. Yeah, it, it was a big deal in my life. And actually, uh, you know, the, the name of the book is The Ride of Our Lives. And the subtitle is Lessons on Life, Leadership, and Love. And it's, it's about a bicycle trip I took across the country from the West Coast to the East Coast in 1983 with my wife and our 15-month-old baby. That's uh, the part to me that is wild. It's the baby that's wild and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a, a self-contained bicycle trip, you know, not motorcycles, but pedal bicycles, 1983, you know, an analog time, you know, right? no, no cell phone, no GPS, no, no Google search before we started the trip. And, and, uh, you know, we had a two man backpacking tent, two sleeping bags. Uh, so we didn't have a van following us or anything. And we made this over 4,000 mile journey from Washington state to Pennsylvania. Uh, and uh, the book is, is, is just about the three months we spent on this cross country journey as a family, uh, a young family learning about each other, learning about our strengths and our weaknesses, and, and just learning lessons about life, leadership, and love, just as the subtitle says. Uh, what's your favorite story from that book, if, if you don't mind sharing it? <laughs> No, if, I, I, if, I, if I ask, if I had to make you pick one, yeah, I, I think my and 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 this is a story about the grace of of God, or really, I think probably more, uh, more about the mercy of of, of God. Uh, we're we're um, in Oregon and we're biking up through this this mountain range, and it was raining, so we had on these red raincoats, and you know. People say, what do you do when it, when it rains, you know, and you're out on this bike trip? Well, you keep on biking, you know? And so we had <laughs> on our, our red rain jackets and, and we're biking and I'm pulling, you know, I, Stephen was riding in a trailer that I was pulling. We get up to the top of the mountain range. We hit a little bit of snow up there and then we start down the mountain. And uh, as we're going down the mountain, you know, the rain is starting to subside and we finally get down into this valley. We, you know, we just get down to the bottom of this, this mountain into a valley and the sun is starting to break through the clouds and there's steam coming up uh, off the road. And Bertie and I stop for a moment just to kind of take a drink of water from our water bottles, have a little bit of a, a, a snack. And as we're, as we're just uh, on this road, we haven't seen a car uh, probably for about the last uh, 30 minutes or so. But as we're about, you know, just coming down that mountain, there's a truck 
coming in a, a, a pickup truck coming in the opposite direction, and the guy is is yelling at us, uh, "Hey, hey, uh, you know, stop, stop!" And so I keep on going with my with my bike because you know I had a trailer behind it, but my wife barely stops, and then she comes down alongside of me. I said, "What did the guy say?" And she said. Be, he, he told me to be careful. There's a puddle in the middle of the road. I said, a puddle? I'm like, okay. And so we're, we're stopped there eating our snack and we're looking down the road through the steam coming off the road. And we see this image coming toward us. And we're looking and looking, trying to make out what, what is this image? And then we both realize it's a bull. Ah! A B-U-L-L bull. Oh, and no. It, it, it must have got out of a farmer's field. And again, we hadn't seen a car, you know, except for that pickup truck. And we're thinking, what the heck are we going to do? You know, when we have these red rain jackets on and, and, and then I saw him stop and he starts pawing at the road and steam's coming out of his nose. Oh no. And I thought that only happened in cartoons. So anyway, we're thinking, you know, maybe we should start trying to bike back up this mountain, but you know, I don't know how effective that's going to be. And then out of nowhere, this car comes down the road. And a big old car, and the car stops, and the guy rolls down his window. He seemed like he, you know, he was dressed in coveralls, a flannel shirt, and he said, "Looks like you guys got yourselves in a pinch here." We said, "Yeah, we do." And he goes, "This is what we're going to do." He goes, "You're, I'm going to keep your, your bikes to the left of my car. I'm going to ride interference for you. I'm going to try to keep the bull to the my, right of my car." And he goes, we're going to go down this road. He goes, don't stop pedaling until we get about another quarter mile, half mile down the road. So he he started his car moving about 10 miles an hour. We're biking to his left. He keeps the bull to the right. And we get past that bull. We go down about another half mile before we stop. And I wanted to drag that that man out of the car and give him a big hug. But, <laughs> but I don't think he wanted me to do that because we were pretty sweaty. And, and, I, and I really think it was God's mercy yeah. That sent this farmer to us mm. to protect us at that very time. Because like I said, very few cars on the road. And for him to come at that exact moment uh, had had to be, you know, God sh shining his grace and mercy on us to get us out of that fix. And that was that was probably the closest call we had on the entire trip. But I, I hate to think what would have happened if that bull uh, caught up with us. Well, and, and to have enough wisdom to figure out how to navigate that, I, I don't know that I would have come up with that solution. Um, you, you know, and I'm, I'm more, I tend to be more aggressive in those kind of moments. Like I would have tried to take my car and maybe run the bull off the road or something. I, and it probably wouldn't have been as helpful as hey, I'm just going to ride. You ride next to me. And that just seems like, oh, that makes perfect sense. That's the right way to handle it. But praise God yeah. that it's somebody who was driving along knew exactly what to do. Honestly, honestly. So I, I think about that a lot, actually. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, I, I know my listeners are going to want to connect with you and what you're doing with all the leadership stuff. Where is the best place to find uh, you and all the work you're doing on the interwebs? Yeah, uh, I'd say go to my website. It's a very simple website. My name is John, J-O-H-N. So my website is john at johngronsky.com. Yeah. So that's J-O-H-N at J-O-H-N-G-R-O-N-S-K-I.com. Uh, I have an e-commerce site there where people could purchase both books, The Ride of Our Lives, and also Iron Sharpened Leadership. And, and I'll sign books and, and send them out to people. I do that all the time. And, uh, and, uh, and again, my email address, 
is is um is john at johngronsky.com website as i mentioned is johngronsky.com so people could connect with me email always happy if anybody has a question i'm always happy just just to give an answer back that's awesome i, I love that and really love your your time and generosity uh last question we always love to ask people um and it is an advice question, but it's it's one particular piece of advice, and and I get to take you to a specific time in your life, and so um, so, sir, I, I'm going to ask you to go back and talk to young platoon leader, uh, first lieutenant, second lieutenant. You're you're kind of your first platoon where you're in command. If you could go back and talk to that young man and give him one piece of advice, what would it be? That, you know, that is an easy one for me because I do talk to a lot of uh, cadets, you know, yeah. cadets and, 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 and that sort of thing. And, and, and I tell them the most important thing, and, and I know I mentioned this at the beginning, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but really to be true to your values, really understand mm. what your values are and, and, and then be true to those. Because I really think uh, character is the foundation of leadership. Uh, so to be true to your values, to, to have that integrity, uh, is, is really key to being a leader. And if you don't do anything else, if you could adhere to that rule, uh, of, of understanding how important values are and adhering to those values, I, I think that's, I think that's essential for any, any leader at any age to understand. Praise God. I love it. I love it. John, thank you so much for your time and generosity today, for what you're doing for leaders all over the world and for your service to our country. We're so thankful. Yeah. Hey, I appreciate your ministry. Uh, thanks for what you're doing, leading your church and, and uh, get this podcast out there and, and help helping other people become better versions of themselves. It, it, it's phenomenal. So thank you. I love that conversation with John. I especially appreciated uh, the talk about the values, right? The high values, the medium values, the low values, right? And how we can train resilience. So many good nuggets in there. Do me a favor, follow John up on the socials. Let him know that you heard him on the Reclamation Podcast. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button, leave a rating and review on iTunes and share this episode with a friend. I'm so thankful for the opportunity to continue to do what I love and to share this with you every single week. Next week, we've got a brand new episode coming out with Rob Ulmer. Uh, we talk about transition. We talk about scripture. It's a life-giving, spirit-filled conversation. So thank you guys so much. And remember, if you want to follow Jesus, you must be willing to move. <laughs>